here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake podcast. And today I'd like to talk about 1984, which is a piece of English literature by George Orwell. It's a a novel by George Orwell. And this will be a three-part series. Well, I don't know if threes count as a series. Maybe we'll call it a mini-series. Because conveniently enough, this novel is divided into three parts. It's quite an influential work. It's quite a strong-standing piece of writing in the world of English literature, and it stood the test of time. Now, it was written in 1949 and set in 1984, and yet now, of course, it's the year 2020, so many years have passed since its set time, and, well, that begs the question, is it out of date? Has it not come to pass, the things that it predicted? And the answer is, of course, well, not exactly, because literature is literature because it comments on something deeper. It comments on principles. It illustrates the strings that are attached to an individual or a character which are transcultural, and that's why they stand the test of time. So the whole idea of a book written in 1949 predicting what the future will be and then the date of that future prediction passing and us seeing that those things didn't come to be is not good enough for our level of analysis. It's not the framework, it's not the lens in which we're approaching this. What we're really looking for is what are the themes and the dynamics and the ins and the outs in this story, in its characters, in its clashes between good and evil, between its settings and all through its narrative and all that and what's the correlation between all that and us today and our story and what life is like for us with our culture. Now of course we live in a much more complex time than 1949. The world is a lot more complicated in many ways, politically, socially, and technologically. But there are still things to learn from this novel. There are still things that are applicable to us, which are applicable to the characters in this plot. And they have many of the same problems that we face today. Problems such as 
not being able to see the water that you're swimming in. The problem of groupthink. The problem of being influenced by an unseen force. The problem of going along with the crowd. The problem of not knowing what's good because you have no way of contrasting it. Only knowing what your condition of life is by way of contrast and failing to do that. And of course, it's not exhaustive. There are many aspects to modern life which are not addressed here. And in fact, many of the comments that come across in this novel, 1984, are applicable to us in ways that weren't originally intended by the author. And really, the work has outgrown the author in many ways. And also, of course, I offer up my, as I always do, my disclaimer that this is not a scholarly analysis. This is not an academic analysis. This is a layman's impression. I'm not a scholar. I'm not an academic. This is what does the common folk get from this just by picking it up and reading it and trying to make sense of, well, how does that fit in with me? And I'm sure there will be many mistakes. There'll be many things that I miss, but I'm also sure I'll find things which are new find things which are different. We're just trying to have a different take. And when it comes to literature, there are, what we say, official discussions and official interpretations, peer-reviewed. And we want to stay outside of that world of discussing things for highbrow education. We just want to be making it more personal and making this more like a friendly conversation of, well, what do you think about this? And, well, what do I think about this? And let's all share our different opinions and our different impressions. So no more apologies for not being an academic. <laughs> maybe this will be the... <laughs> maybe this should be the last time that I make that apology because <laughs> it's not really something that I aspire to be. You know me by now. I think we've been through enough at this stage for for you to know that we're in this together and we're going to go through this in our own way. And there's nothing wrong with that. So a lot of the common themes are, well, what about surveillance state? Surveillance is a big theme. And also, the interplay between the state, as in the government, and the individual is a big theme throughout this. And it's not black and white. It's not simple, as in, oh, the government is bad, and then all the individuals are oppressed on the other side. No, we go into class levels and we go into the different areas in which power can be held because power can be held in many different places. And today's argument is that, 
Well, profit is power, not politics, not law. It's actually in profiteering, in capitalism. And really, I'd like to mention Noam Chomsky in relation to this, because he said, and this is one of his central sticks on cultural commentary, that there are two reasons a country goes to war. There's the reason they tell its people, and then there's the profiteering reason, or the material gain, whether it's for natural resources, and so on. And keep that in mind, because that comes up here in this story. And really, the ultimate insight that I want to focus on and the ultimate gain from this conversation I want us to have is to bring it back to the personal. Bring it back to the individual. And really, this is one of the biggest themes in everything, which is the individual versus the collective. And the individual, as against a state or a government, is only one form of this individual versus collective, because there's also the individual versus their culture, the individual versus their community, individual versus their family and their close friends or their immediate acquaintances. And then there's also the individual versus their intimate partner or their significant other. Because for a collective, you only need to add one. Two's a crowd when we go to this definition of individual and collective. And as we go through this plot, you'll find that these lines, they're blurred. What's influencing and the strings on this individual, the main character in our story, is not always exactly clear, even to us as readers, and of course not to himself. So those are some of the things to look out for and keep in mind as we make our way through this plot. 1984 by George Orwell, Part 1. It was a bright cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast, in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, end quote. So he lives in Victory Mansions, and contrary to what you would think, it's actually not a very nice place to live. He has to force his way through these lifts that don't always work, so he takes the stairs, there's dust everywhere, it's dirty, there are broken windows... Some of the lights don't work. It's tricky to get into his door, door of his flat and these sorts of things. And you'd think with a place named Victory Mansions, 
that it would be grand, it would be clean, it would be beautiful, it would be luxurious. And that's really the whole tone of this dystopia. It's the whole thing of something being labelled something wrong, something labelled the wrong way. Victory mansions, and it really reeks of, well, defeat. And he goes in and he sees in his apartment there's this big poster which says, Big Brother is watching you. And it's a picture of this big face. And for him, this is just normal stuff. Because in his world, there's always a picture of a big face right in front of him. And in fact, every house has one one of these. It's part of the culture. It's part of the society in which he lives. And he's always feeling like this black moustache moustache face gazing at him is watching him and of course there's also the telly screen which is projecting this face so in this world that we're stepping into with this character Winston Smith we find that he's in victory mansions and it's a real mess in there and he's under watch of this picture of Big Brother which comes through the telly screen. Now, isn't it funny that in this world, there's a screen that watches you? And of course, that's exactly the world we live in now. And also, may I point out to you that we do live in a place where a big picture of a face is just around the corner. You might say, well, no, we don't live in a dictatorship. We don't put pictures of politicians up on the wall. We live in a democracy. Dosta, what are you talking about? And I say, well, it's not the politicians that are in that position. Now it's the celebrities. Now it's the cultural icons, the so-called cultural icons. Now it's advertising. Now it's the people that are trying to sell you a product. It's the poster boys, the poster girls. It's the actors. And so on. So these people have an influence over us and they're always there and they're always in these big billboards or they're always on these screens in their own way and they have their own influence over us which is different to how it's happening here in this story which is the big dictator of Big Brother and yet there's so many similarities this screen the telly screen that Winston has in his apartment and that everyone apparently has in their apartment also gives off orders and it says things and there's even a point where it's interacting with him so he comes in and he sits down and he has a look around and he realizes that he well he doesn't realize he takes a look at again the party slogan 
And the party slogan that goes along with this big face and this telescreen is war is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. So just like Victory Apartments being a place of defeat, everything is backwards. Everything is contradictory. And then he makes himself some coffee, and the coffee's called Victory Coffee, and it tastes terrible. It's got fake sugar in it. And he makes himself some gin. And as it turns out, he's actually having gin for dinner because he needs to save his coupons for his next meal, for his breakfast meal. So he's rationing his food. He hasn't got enough food. And at the same time, this telescreen then has an announcement. And the announcement is about the Department of Plenty. And this department is saying how much plentiful things are, how much has been produced. There's more bootstraps than ever. There are more shoelaces and bootstraps than ever. There are more things that have been made, more things that have been used by the common people. We've fulfilled our quota. We've over-fulfilled our quota. So this screen is telling him that he's living in a society of goodness. His apartment is telling him he's living, he's living in a mansion, a victory mansion. His drink is named Victory Gin, and yet it, he has quite a shudder when it goes down. So everything is backwards, and this party slogan of war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, keeps him in the dark, it keeps him ignorant and it keeps him confused about, well, what is so real about something that's victorious or something that's peaceful or freedom or strength? So in our character, well, it doesn't quite fit right with him. And he has this little thing in him that disagrees. And it's not very clear. It's not very strong. It's not like he's a full rebel. It's just a little inkling. And as it happened, previously in the week, he'd been out to a shop and he'd bought himself a diary. And even that might have been a risky thing because in surveillance state, you're not supposed to be doing actions which are unorthodox, and going out to a shop to buy a diary could have been considered unorthodox. So he's sitting in his apartment, and he sits up in such a way at his desk so that the screen can't watch him, and he looks at the diary, and then he decides, well, let me try and sort out my thoughts. Let me think this through and really educate myself about this feeling that I have that something's not quite right about the way things run around here. And he starts writing. And of course, even in just that moment of deciding to write, the first step of putting pen to page was an act of rebellion. And something changed in him by doing just that. And he asked himself quite deep questions. Let me read some. This is a quote. How could you communicate 
with the future, it was of its nature impossible. Even the future would resemble the present, in which case it would not listen to him, or it would be different, a different form of it, and it, his predicament would be meaningless. End quote. So he's sitting there, looking at his diary and thinking, well, what can I write? Because possibly no one would ever read this. And actually making records and writing books is all in the hands of the state. So all information and all knowledge is in control of the state. So what can you write? What can you write when you realize that no one can ever read it? So he decides to lighten up a bit and write about one of the movies that he saw. And this is a piece of propaganda which is about the war that is going on. And it's quite violent and he's not really sure what his reaction to it is. And he keeps writing and he starts to think, well, there's something wrong with this society and it comes across really strongly in certain individuals. And one of the individuals he has a problem with is a girl. This is a young lady who's the leader of the anti-sex league. And perhaps ironically, and in true dystopian style, she's actually quite good looking. She's actually quite sexy. And from the very moment Winston disliked her, because she participated in the society so wholeheartedly. She would have her emotions run along just the way that the telly screen told her to. Now there's these moments of hate and these moments of outrage that is coordinated by the state and people have their bursts of rage and there's also these bursts of victory when there's news about, well, the war that's raging on in some other distant land. So it's like, it's sort of like how you feel is how you're told to feel. There's a little bit of that going on. And it's not exactly that black and white because, well, you simply go along with the crowd and it's created in such a way that isn't being told to you. It's not like the telescreen is saying, hey, Now's the time to feel hatred. Oh, now's the time to feel victory. No, it's more subtle than that because the culture has, the state has these ways of constructing a moment and constructing an atmosphere, a situation where that feeling comes out and then what that feeling is being projected onto is fulfilled by the state. They might say, well, this is the enemy, or this is the traitor, or this is the whatever, whatever it is. So she goes along with it, and Winston is thinking, well, I really don't like this woman. And then, of course, there are other people in this man's world which he wonders about in a different way. And one of these people is O'Brien. So O'Brien certain, certainly has a look about him. And they, ha they haven't talked, 
Winston hasn't really spoken with O'Brien. But there's just this way that he looks. And they have this moment where they look eye to eye. And O'Brien shifts his glasses. He just shifts the weight of it on his nose. And just how he looks at him is enough for Winston to start to wonder, to start to have hope that maybe there's someone else who doesn't agree with what's going on. And this is quite bizarre. It's quite interesting that you can begin to trust someone just by how they look and also really start to hate someone by just how they look like this woman who's the leader of the anti-sex league. And he's sort of in his own world and he's got very little information to go off on these characters. But he starts writing about it in his diary and he's trying to work it out. He's trying to really think it through and see, well, what is it? And of course, there's also the risk hanging over him. There's a fear hanging over him because he knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows what he's doing will be punishable. So he's in a bit of a tight spot. And it's not exactly clear that his rebellious nature will be able to flower. As he thinks about it more, he really did figure out that he hates this woman because she's such a symbol of chastity, because she's so young and pretty and yet so sexless. And he goes into this fantasy of how he would love to tie her up naked and shoot her or cut her throat right when he's having sex with her. It's a very violent image, and he's got this very dark turn towards her. And there is something in that. There is something resentful about a beautiful woman who doesn't know how she has it. And there is also something very... Well, well, this is fundamental to the masculine energy, which is the... How do, how should I put this? I feel like I I feel like whenever we talk about masculine feminine there's a there's a dark door that opens up. <laughs> and it's either personal, it's either too personal or 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 I'm going to get in trouble for saying something from someone on either of the sides. <laughs> so how do I say this? There's there's a violence in the man and the power of the man is a dichotomy that goes hand in hand. And it's not exactly power. What is it? It would be the, the instinct to, or the, the, the sexual urge. So that, that violence towards a woman and the urge, the attraction towards the woman, the woman, is a very tricky thing to differentiate. And we see here in this character and in this fantasy that Winston's having, those things are not differentiated because he's very attracted to her and yet he really would like to hate her and even kill her. So the feelings are mixed up. The feelings are wrong. They're all unclear to him. and He doesn't know how to think them through for himself. 
He doesn't know how to des- decide which, what, what, what should he do with this? What will he do with this? And he's so alone, he's got nothing in reality to check with this with. He's just stuck in his own little world. And so he's only got very little to go off. So it's just his inner world spiraling out all these different fantasies. And that's partly why he's starting this diary, is to really start to sort things out for himself. As he keeps writing in his diary, and things do start to become clear, he starts to write down with Big Brother over and over again. And he writes it down with Big Brother, down with Big Brother. And he realizes that if they find this, if the state find out about this, they'll shoot him. It'll be over, all over Red Rover. But this is his birth. This is his, the murmur of his rebellion. And we think, is this going to be the hero of the story? Because we've stepped into this world, and it's not a very good lifestyle. The state has all this power. They have all this control over knowledge. It's not a good way of living. And it really is just like everything's wrong. For us as a reader, we can say, this is terrible. This is a dystopia. This is a nightmare. How could we live in this? And we're thinking that this character, Winston, is going to be the guy that pulls us through. Now, what do we want him to do? Do we want him to rebel? Do we want him to work things out for himself? And I think yes. I think he could be the hero of the story. And this could just be the beginning of his rebellion. As simple as it is, just writing in a diary, down with Big Brother. So someone knocks on his apartment door and he quickly closes the diary, but or, or hides it up because he doesn't want someone to see it. And it's one of his neighbours. And she says, oh, can you come and help me with some handyman thing? And he says, okay, well, her husband's away. And he goes upstairs and it's something with the sink or he's fixing up the sink. And her kids come in and they're screaming and shouting and they say, traitor, traitor, you're a thought criminal. And it's the little boy of this woman that he's fixing the sink for. And her little si- and his little sister comes in and it's, you're a spy, I'll shoot you, I'll vaporize you, I'll send you to the concentration camp and of course the little boy is just playing he's just making a game out of his culture he's making a game out of what he's heard on his telly screen but for Winston he's thinking whoa I've just been doing this rebellious act in my apartment and now this kid is putting this on me and the kid shoots him with his ball bearing gun or something and he sort of gets very awkward about it and there's even this side thing of well in this culture, kids actually can spy on adults and they can have their parents or family friends sent off for certain things. So there is a great fear in the children, in, in the adults of the children at a certain age. And yet Winston keeps thinking, has it always been like this? What was it like before the revolution, before this government was instated? 
That night he has a dream about his mother. And it's not very clear what she was like. And he's still trying to sort out his memories. And it turns out he was a bit of a brute as a kid. He was a bit greedy. And he steals this chocolate from his younger sister. And then his mother somehow goes missing. And he doesn't understand why. But just at a certain age, she went missing. And he never saw saw him again. And when he wakes up, the telly screen is yelling at him. So each morning he starts with being yelled at. And he's given this exercise routine. And isn't it funny that, well, actually now there is a big culture on having your smartphone or your tablet yell at you and motivate you to do exercise. People volunteer for this now. And here we are with this character who's being forced to do his morning exercise. And you could say, well, well, is that good for him? And as it's described in the book, it's a bit, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a slog for him, and he's sort of doing more damage than good for this this old his older older man, this sort of rickety body that he's got. So we could say that this whole thing of the exercise workout and having the scream yell at you is another way of control. And it's not exactly control as in oh we need you to do a certain thing or a certain something. It's more just part of a general feeling in the culture. And when we talk about control, it's a, it's, a, it's a slippery slope to say, well, the state is controlling individuals. Well, no, not exactly. That's too simplistic. It might be better to, or perhaps a better way to say it is, well, there's a general climate which is created by certain forces which we are in. And sometimes that's the state, sometimes that's the culture, sometimes it's something that is completely different and far off that we don't know. And you can say, well, today it's the capitalism, it's the profit, people are yelling at you to get fit and to lose weight and giving you these workout regimes because they're trying to make their money from their business. And there are many other forces at work. So it's not fair to say, it's not, a, it's not an ABC thing. It's not like someone in the government has said, well, it would be great if we could give everyone a morning routine of exercise because that would mean they would do whatever we tell them. That conversation's never taken place. That doesn't happen. It's more general. It's more off. So he goes into work, and where he works is with one of the departments of information. And his job, Winston Smith, is to fix up bits of information from all over the place. So there might be books, or there are articles, or there are any old things that he has to fix up because, well... The party controls information and the, the information always has to fit with the image of this big brother figure, of this superpower. And it's always changing, but in a sense, 
The change is the struggle to have things always the same. And there are all these contradictions about, well, if someone disappears, if someone is vaporized or purged, as we could say, and they're killed for political reasons, well, now, if there are references to them, this is just an example, if there are references to them, we have to change those references. Because not only are they dead, well, we say that they never existed before. And then also, there's the, as another example, there are these quotes for the Ministry of Plenty. So like they were saying, well, we have plenty of bootstraps and we have plenty of things in our society. Well, that quote needs to fit what they predicted. And so if it's wrong, just go back and change the prediction. And Winston works in a team with other people in his office, changing numbers. And it's quite tedious work. And there are some that are routine measures. Some things involve making numbers up. And there's a whole another language for it. There's this different language and these different terms that he has to know. And there are certain procedures of deleting and cutting out files and cross-referencing. There are all sorts of levels to it. He might be working on a speech that Big Brother did or there might be a quote for the Ministry of Plenty. Or there might be a reference to an article or a reference to a person. And it says here that actually one of the things that Winston liked most was going to work. Even though most of the material that he was dealing with had no connection to anything in the real world. He had no way of knowing what sort of production there was. And doesn't that sound familiar? I'm wagering that there are many people that work in their offices still today that don't exactly know how what their paperwork correlates to something in the real world. And when we say this word real world, we need to be clear because this is another big question of the book. This is the philosophical side of the book. It's like, well, the the book 1984 How do we know what's real? How do you know what's true? How do you know something actually did happen in the past? This is something that's eating away at Winston because he's making these changes. He's working with this information. He's seeing how the knowledge flows. And yet something isn't quite right. It doesn't add up to the real world. And just ask yourself, well, this is where we get the term paper pusher. So if you work in an office and you're a paper pusher, you're really just shuffling information around. And information, as it correlates to the different spheres of existence, is a vast, complex world. And there are always more options for it to go wrong or for it to be inaccurate then there are for it to be accurate. And when I say interactions between the spheres of existence, I mean, for example, the biosphere. 
and also the empirical sphere, the sphere of objects. How many people are in the factory? How much food is being produced? How many trees are growing? And then there are the actual objects themselves, the counting of the objects, and so on. And you can ask yourself this. You can actually trace from any number in any business. Now, if you have a business, you really want your number, one number, to correlate to one thing. So say we have number of products sold in a business. This is business, very basic business. Then we can say that there's a number and then there's a correlation of what it is in the real world. And we can say, well, how do we find that number? How do we verify that number? Well, we count them. But then you can say, well, what's your process of counting them? How do we know that that's accurate? And then we can say, well, is it a point in time? And we say, yes, we're doing just products for the whole year. And it's like, well, do you count every single one for the whole year? And then also verify your counting process? Or you just take it at different intervals? And so on. And then if we want to analyze that, we do data analysis. Do we divide it into different seasons? Do we divide it into different months? And so on. And that's just one complexity around the different numbers that can be involved in a business because we can then do metadata analysis and we say, well, okay, we made this number of products this year and last year we made this number of products. So what's the percentage difference in those? And that percentage is a number. You realize that a percentage is a number. And that number is a metadata analysis. As simple as it sounds, and lots of businesses do, do growth numbers like this. But that number, it's not a real number. It doesn't correlate to something. It's correlating to the relationship between two numbers. And below those two numbers are what they correlate to in the real world. And here you have an ever-ending spiral upwards of meta-numbers on meta-numbers. More complex data analysis. More complex ways of organizing the numbers. And there is an art to data analysis. I'm not saying that down with business because it's all hocus pocus. And really you can say, well, 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 what can we say about it? It's it's a world which which does have purity in it, but very rarely. And in fact the downside of working in an office is always floating around in that world and not knowing where the clarity is. So this is the sort of job that Winston has. And I think it's the sort of job that a lot of people have when they work in an office. And it comes back to the personal because his work was tedious routine but then there are also jobs that were difficult and intric intricate and they sort of left a 
like a, like a mathematical problem being solved, it was satisfying to him. It was actually good. There was still a sense of, oh, I've done something. Work for work's sake still fulfills something in him. And, you know, with his gin drinking habit and his messy apartment in victory mansions, going to work isn't that bad. Going to work is not such a drag when you don't have much else to look forward to. So he goes to lunch break. And he meets up with someone who's a writer of the dictionary. And he's telling Winston about this new dictionary that's coming out, which is going to be the official language of the government. And basically what he's saying is he's deleting words. He's making language more narrow. So there are less in the vocabulary. And he's sort of telling Winston like, like, oh, of course you agree. And of how, how it's such a good thing. It's this dystopian thing coming back up again. This dystopian vibe of, no, we don't need poetry. No, we don't need complexity in our ideas. And even he goes as far to say that, well, you don't need to even think. Thinking will be abolished. There will be no thought crime possible because the words in this language are being diminished. And Winston is sort of sitting there listening to him and thinking, well, what can I say about all this? He can't disagree. He has to go along with it. This man's an official dictionary writer. And actually, one of the things Winston thinks is that this man who he's talking with might actually get purged. He might actually be killed because he's so smart, because he can explain too well how words work. It's almost like he knows too much. And even though he's working for the party, he's creating this language, and he's apparently pushing all the values that the party stands for, he still might get vaporized. He still might get eradicated. And then another man comes along and sits with them at the lunch table. And this guy's not quite so smart. He's a bit smelly and he's a bit fat. And he's just saying something to Winston about, oh, sorry about the kids that, oh, thanks for kitchen, fixing the sink the other night. You know, it's his neighbor. And he's just saying dumb stuff about, oh, the, the, the festival that's coming up. And actually, the festival that's coming up is called Hate Week. And that comes up again of this, like, why would you be celebrating hate? Everything is upside down in, in this world. And Winston thinks, after listening to the dictionary man and now listening to this man talking about the festival and how he's, oh, yeah, let's just go along with it. This is the culture and this is what we're doing. Winston thinks, well, actually, no, this guy will not be purged. This guy will probably live because he fits in with the society and he goes along with the society and it really is him. There's not a thing in him which is intelligent and there's nothing in him which would rebel. He is the epitome of orthodoxy.
The other person he sees at lunch is this girl that he'd seen before. And she'd actually looked at him. And he started to wonder if she was spying on him. And he wondered if maybe she wasn't just a member of the anti-sex league, working in whatever department she's in, but she's actually also a secret spy for the Thought Police. So he starts to wonder if he should keep some distance from this girl. And he sort of sits around at lunch and he thinks to himself, Man, people sure are ugly around here. That's one of his thoughts. And the food isn't very good. And the place is quite dirty. And he just thinks, how could this be? Because he's got nothing else to reference on. How were things before? If only he could remember. If only he could get his thoughts right. And he can't find out. Maybe he should try and ask someone, what was it like before? But everyone that's around him is in the same situation as he is. So what chance does he have of making some other reference to how things were before the revolution, before this state was in power? So he spends a little bit more time at his desk, writing in his diary. And he goes back into a memory that he had from many years ago. And this was his memory of when he went to visit a prostitute. And there is some risk to this, because you can get in trouble. But also, sex is in those in, in, in all ways in this dystopian society, it's not exactly clear how the state deals with it and whether it allows it or not and whether it's oppressing it. Well, well it oppresses sex. It represses the sexual instinct in many ways and yet in other ways it encourages it in an impure form. So the government is actually even printing pornography and giving it, handing it out to certain classes of people. And then on other classes, they're repressing the sexual act. And Winston's recalling this experience that he had with the prostitute of sneaking out and going into the darks, into the shadows, into those shady parts of town, and going back to her room. And this moment where he turns on the light, and she re- he realizes she's quite old, and she's quite ugly, and it's not a very attractive moment, it's not a very romantic moment, but he goes through with it anyway, and he feels sort of bad about it. It's not a very fond memory of his. It's very hard for him to recall this and to write about it in his diary. And he then goes on to think about his wife. And his wife hasn't been with him for many years. And their sex life was also very awkward. He thinks about what it was like to have sex with his wife and how she sort of always said, oh, we need to do our duty to the party. Oh, we need to have it as a thing, our weekly thing. 
to try for a baby for the purposes of the party. Which makes it sound like such a chore. And he also describes the actual act itself of how awkward it is and how she's sort of pushing him away and there's no real connection there. There's no real excitement. There's no real, there's no orgasm. There's nothing really. It's really just basic 101 bad sex. And the culture is making it so. It's her ideas of sex and how it should be done for the good of the party that is making her feel this way. And it's not as though they could really just sit down and have an open conversation about sex because there's also the influence of all their education. Not only the propaganda that's being bombarded with them day in, day out. But even as he thinks this through, Winston realises that sex is political. Sexual freedom is a real freedom. And it's that little thing in him that's thinking, there's something wrong with this. There's something not right. How can I rebel? And it's not an overt rebellion. He hasn't made himself totally clear about what he wants and what he's going to do or how he's going to do it, how he's going to respond to this situation, this society. But at least as he thinks through this relationship that he has with his wife and this moment that he has with this prostitute, he starts to realize there's something important in sex. And there is. It's very hard to control a man who's sexually fulfilled. It's very hard to knock down the confidence of a man who's sexually fulfilled. And that's why there's so much in this society that is anti-sex, against sex. And yet on the other hand, there are these stimulants, there are these things that set off sexual frustration. And now, does that sound familiar? Do we have sexual freedom in our society? It's definitely clear to me that there is more, there are more sexualized images more broadly consumed than ever before in our society, in Western culture. Sex sells. And this goes for traditional media marketing as well as technological marketing or informational marketing, social media marketing. Now, particularly the the female figure is used so much as a way of selling something, as a way of influencing someone's feelings to get an emotional reaction and to put it put that reaction right next to a product and just like here where the act of waking up and doing an exercise in the morning is not an abc moment of how are we going to control these people also this whole thing of a man's sexuality is not 
an ABC construction. It's more general. It's more distant. It's abstract. It's not like someone's sitting down in the committee of the government saying, okay, now how do we sexually repress our men so that we can control them? Let's do A, B, C, and D. Implement them. One, two, three, four. No, it's not like that at all. And it doesn't come across that way in this novel, 1984. It's more about a general culture. There are norms that come through the individuals which are propelled by the individuals but begin with little suggestions. They begin with little bits of information. They begin with how education occurs on the subject and so on. As he keeps writing in his diary, he tries to sort out another thought, which is, well, why don't I go back to the history books and then cross-reference things? And he finds a children's history book, or one of his old textbooks from when he was a kid, and he starts reading the history. And he reads about what it was like before the revolution. And he learns about these capitalist pigs that wear top hats and always tell people what to do and make sure everyone is servants to them and oppress the lower class. And they're always just profiteering and making money. And this is the history that he's told in his culture, is that profiteering is bad. Capitalism is bad. Class differences are bad. We need equality. We need everyone to be equal. And he starts to think, well, if I can cross-reference this, then I can see if it's true. But there's no information for him. There's nothing to cross-reference it with, because all, all the things that were written down have been altered or destroyed. And all the people that lived at that time have forgotten or don't want to talk about it or have died. Until one day he actually does, and he continues on with this quest of trying to figure out the past and his thoughts, and one day he actually does find something in print that is a contradiction. And he says, Eureka, this is it, I've found it. And it's to do with these three people who... It doesn't matter who they were. I'm not going to mention their names. They're just sub-characters. But basically, these three people had been tried and convicted as thought criminals and being against the state. And it turns out that they were in a different country at the time that they were supposedly doing the crimes that they were doing. And so that was the contradiction. And there was proof of it in this piece of paper that Winston had. And so he keeps starting to feel more and more as he's sorting out his thoughts that there is a way to prove things. And there are times when he wonders about his sanity. He wonders, well, who's got it right? Have I really got it right? And this idea of being confident, like for us as readers, it would be easy for us to say, well, this society is wrong and you should stand up and rebel. Simple as that. But really, when we're in the world of Winston, when we're in this character, and we're following through all the things that he's contending with, 
and we're really following along, then we can start to see, well, how do you work it out? How do you learn things by contrast? And this is a process. It's not a aha, eureka moment of now I decide I'm going to rebel. No. It's also tied in with the information that he's got, with how he feels, how his health is, how his situation is. So this one example of him finding these three people that were convicted of crimes which they couldn't have committed was just a another step in his journey and his realization of sexual oppression and the political nature of sex was another so he keeps trying to work things out and he keeps writing in his diary and he gets to the point where he thinks now there must be someone alive that remembers And there must be a way to talk to that person and to see what their memories really are. So he's out and about one night and he sees an old pub which is by the lower class people, frequented by lower class people. He decides to go in there and he goes in because he's in his workwear, it's a bit awkward because he's a middle class and he's a middle class citizen and these are lower class people and everyone takes a bit of a nervous look around as he walks in and he walks up to the bar where there's this old man and the old man's arguing with the barman and the argument is well I want a pint and the barman says no we only sell half liters or liters and the old man says no give me a pint Half a litre isn't enough, and a full litre is too much. And there's a back and forth, and Winston steps in and says, no, let me me take care of you. This is obviously the man. This is obviously someone he can talk to, because he's quite old. And he can remember when things were a pint. They were the old system, not a half litre or litre. So Winston buys him a drink and sort of takes him over to a corner, and the mood in the room sort of lightens up a bit, and people sort of forget about Winston's presence and Winston sits him down and sort of just starts to ask him starts to work out what what were things like before the revolution what memories do you have and the man sort of just starts talking and he has these old little stories and he's sort of off subject so Winston asks him again but what was it like what was life like What were the conditions like? And Winston even starts to talk about the old history book, the children's history book that he'd been educated with. What were capitalists like? Did they wear top hats? Did they oppress the lower classes? Were they evil? And the old man sort of says, Oh, top hats. I haven't seen one of those in ages. And did they oppress us? Oh, well, I have this old memory. And he goes off on this little story. And then again and again, Winston keeps asking him, no, I need to know more about the general feeling, the conditions of life. And every time he talks to him, this old man would just tell this ton of sort of anecdotal story. And it's a very little detailed personal story. 
with a de- detailed interaction that he'd had. And Winston, well, after talking to this man over and over, he realizes this old man can't help him. And it's not exactly that he's forgotten. It's not exactly that he's had the government retrain his brain so that he can't remember the the past. It's not like someone's come along and done a probe or done some memory trick with some technology. It's simply that the old man doesn't have a perspective that in, that includes the differences between the past and the present. And those differences need to be compared not just by details and individual things, but also in generalities, in the bigger picture. So when we talk about big picture thinking, we often think, well, what is the big picture? What is the big picture of society? What is the vision of society? How do we speak in broad general terms about society and our condition of life? But really what Winston needs is the big picture of his current society as well as contrasted to the big picture of society previously. So we need the big pictures, plural. We need multiple big pictures. And he starts to realize, well, there's no way that he could ever get that because there's not enough of the information. There's not enough of the small bits to make up a big picture. Even if he'd sat and talked to that man for hours in the pub, he wouldn't have got much from him. All the little parts are isolated. They're not connected. So Winston feels a bit bad about going and asking someone who's old if they remember much about the past. And you can do this. I think everyone's had this instinct in their life to say, well, well, Grandma, tell me, what was life like when you were a child? Grandma, what was life like? What did you live through? Grandma, you must have seen so much change in society. Grandma, you lived through so much. Tell us what it was like. What happened? And of course, to a certain extent, the elderly do know, well, I lived through this cultural moment or this definitive moment in a nation's history. And they know history as such. But then there's also the personal stories, the personal experiences and sometimes those stories are, well, well, there, there, there's a depth of richness to the personal story. And that's really another big philosophical thing that this book is contending with, is the, the personal history and your own past in relation to your understanding of ABC history, or what we mean in the word of, what we mean by the word history in the normal sense the history of a nation, the history of the world. And there's a never-ending depth of connection there between those two things. And for some people, and even for historians, if we, if we take a normal historian now today, 
Those two things are very much separated. They're very much different. We have history, the history of the world, which is this big complex thing and it's this rich thing and then they know lots about and they can talk lots about if they're a good historian and they've read lots of books about it and that's over here and then there's me and I'm just the person who likes to study it and it's just my little life. And there's no connection. And of course, you can do it the other way. You can go the other way and say, well, how can I trust what's in books? And what relevance is it to me? What someone lived like 100 years ago or 200 years ago in a different culture, in a different place. And I'm just cared about, I just care about my personal history. I just write my journal. I just write my autobiography. I do my shadow work. I work out my own inner narrative. I do my own psychology. And that would be the other extreme to the historian. And really what we want, what we want is both. We want them both to be rich, both to be vast, and also to be connected and to see the connection in every way. And this is the very subtle instinct that Winston has. He's grappling with his personal memories. He's grappling with memories of his mother, memories of his wife. And then he's grappling with these moments in history of what it was like before the revolution, the history books. And he's trying to inquire. He's trying to make the personal bridge the collective understanding. And that's why he's gone to this man in the pub that's why he's had this conversation. There, there's an instinct there. And of course, as we read this, what we want is this character to be the hero and say, yes, keep going. Don't give up after you've had this conversation with this man. And there's something, there's something disheartening to learn that this old man can't help Winston or that Winston hasn't got what he wants, even though it's unclear what exactly he wants. But we want him to keep going. We want him to think... Well, well, what would it look to really, like, there's no image, this man has no image of what it's like to resolve these things, to have these things. He's really just flying blind. And if we were to sit Winston down and to have this conversation with him and say, well, you've got history on one side, and then you've got your personal story on the other, and you're trying to put the two together... He'd probably say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Now I can see that's why I've gone to this man in the pub, this old man. But how do I do that? What's my next step? How do I resolve this? I haven't got the resources. And for you and me, well, we're in a very different situation. Because now we do have people who have resolved that. Now we do have resources available to us. We don't live in the society that Winston lives in, in 1984. So he leaves the pub and he goes out and he doesn't feel like actually just going home just yet. So he walks around the streets and it's quite late at night and he's sort of just walking around thinking to himself and where he ends up is outside the shop where he'd bought his diary from. So he decides to go in, 
And if he says, well, if anyone asks, I'll just say I'm trying to find some bootstraps because they're in short supply. And he goes in and the shop owner actually remembers him. And the shop owner is this older man, seems quite innocent. And Winston's looking around and he's just seeing these old antiques. And he gets the impression that this shop owner is more of a collector than really a seller. And he's just sort of browsing things and the shop owner's pointing things out. And Winston comes across this paperweight, this glass paperweight. And inside that paperweight is a piece of coral reef. And he's struck by the beauty of it. And this is his soul whispering again. Beauty. To admire something just for the sake of admiring it is so important. And this really is one of his heroic moments. Because he's in all this confusion. He's in the society. He's got this government always watching over him. And yet, deep down inside, he still has the instinct for beauty. And he says to the shop owner, how much for this? And the shop owner says, you know, whatever, four pounds, four dollars, four euros. And he says, I'll take it. And he asks him, how old is this? And the shop owner thinks, well, it must be over a hundred years old. Wow. And Winston is just filled with this warmth, knowing that he owns an object which is historic. And it's beautiful. And it becomes one of his most prized possessions. And he keeps talking to the shop owner. And the shop owner sort of takes a bit of a liking to him. And he says, well, come and take a look upstairs. I've got some more things. Winston goes upstairs and there's another room. And it turns out there's actually a bed in this room. And it's actually made for a living space. But it appears that the shop owner's not living there. He's living downstairs out the back somewhere. And Winston thinks, well, this, this might be a place to hide out in. This might work if the shop owner's up for some sort of arrangement. He seems to be happy to make some money from selling some products. Maybe he would be okay with renting it out. So Winston's thinking, now I can have some privacy. Maybe I can remove myself it just, just for a little few hours each day or each week. If I had a separate place where I could be myself, I could start to remove myself and then really start to think for myself and then really start to see what's going on in this society and what's wrong with it. And he talks a little bit more to the shopkeeper, the shop owner, and the shop owner tries to sell him some more things. And Winston even comments and says, well, there's no telly screen in this room. That must be nice. And the shop owner just sort of says, oh, whatever. And then it gets a bit late and Winston doesn't want to really spend too much more money. So he makes his way out 
and he comes out of the shop, and now it's quite late at night, so he makes his way home quite quickly, but not before passing someone. And that is the girl that he'd seen at his work. The girl that's the leader of the anti-sex league. And he thinks, what is she doing out? And she sort of rushes past nervously and keeps going in the opposite direction. And he thinks for a moment, was she spying on me? It's only a very small chance that they would cross paths at this hour in this place. She must have been watching to see that he was going into that shop. What if she'd been watching him? And seen him go into the lower class pub. Maybe she'd been watching him all night. And she was a member of the thought police. And maybe, maybe Winston's time was up. Maybe his story was coming to an end. Maybe all his attempts to think for himself had finally caught up for him. And one of his thoughts is, well, maybe I should chase after her and kill her. He could use a stone from the side of the street. She only been off in just a minute. If he, ch- if he chose now, if he acted quickly, and it's late at night, he could use cover of darkness. He could race after her, grab her, and kill her. But he decides against it. He decides it's better to just go home. And as he goes home that night, There are two things on his mind. One is his very faint hope that O'Brien, the man he'd made eye contact with for just a moment and had just a moment of trust with, might actually be someone that he can trust. He might actually be someone who can show him a way to live differently and to contend with this society that he's in. And the other thing that he's thinking about is the thing that's on his telescreen and being blared into his face, which is the slogan of the ministry, the slogan of the government, which is, War is Peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. And that is the end of part one of 1984 by George Orwell. And we're left wondering what will Winston do next? What is going to happen? And this world that he's in, this this dystopian nightmare of a world, we don't know if he will learn what it's actually like. Will he be able to see? Will he be the fish that sees the water? Will he be the frog that jumps out of the pot of water that is being slowly brought to the boil? Will he be our hero? And will these things that are just little whispers of the soul, things of beauty, things of personal history, 
moments of memory, moments of a yearning for truth, a yearning for clarity. Will they be resolved for him? Will they come to fruition? Will they come to be flowers that bloom? So we can finish now with a few minutes of silence to just think about Winston and think about his culture and just see that this process that he's in is a similar process to what we're in, in trying to figure out what our culture is and what society is. So if it's comfortable for you to do so, stop what you're doing, sit down somewhere quietly, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, And just allow your energy to relax. There's no need to get too excited. There's no need to distract yourself. Just come back to your sense of patience. Come back to your sense of relaxing. And just remember that it's great to have these conversations and to talk and to think things through. But it's up to you to process them. It's all up to you to listen to how you are now. To listen to your reaction to this situation right here. Pay attention to how you are right now. Feel what it's like to be where you are right now. And just take a few minutes to sit quietly. And that's all I have to say for now.